So if you look at your outline, uh, you can see the title of this message is Holy Spirit-Led Community. So uh, when I actually came up with this title, uh, the, uh, the Presbyterian me got a little suspicious, and the Pentecostal me got a little emotional. So I don't, I don't know how this might hit you, but that's what I want to focus on this morning is uh, what is Holy Spirit-Led Community? And I want to start with some present-day examples. When I was in my 20s, I moved to San Antonio after college, and I was introduced to four architects in the city of San Antonio. And uh, they were businessmen in town, and, and uh, over time, as I got to know these guys, I noticed that there was something incredibly different about them. Not only them as individuals, but uh, their friendships, uh, the tight-knit community that they had around them, and even their business. And they operated in a way that uh, uh, caught my attention and, and actually drew me to them. I wanted to, to kind of know who they were. Uh, you know, the, the scripture talks about communities being a, a pleasant fragrance to God. Well, if you could put a smell to these guys, they smelt really nicely. And I, I was drawn to that. Well, over time, I jumped into a small group with one of these guys. I was in this group for five years. And these four men had a big impact on my life, their friendships, their love for one another, and then two, the impact that I could see they were having on the broader community in the business world. So there was something very alive and organic and life-giving about this business, which is, was odd to me, uh, but yet I saw this exercised uh, within the walls of the business. Uh, in uh, junior high, I became good friends with a guy named Brett Rogers who is still my friend of the state, probably my closest and longest standing friend. And he runs a college ministry at the University of Texas. Well, eight or nine years ago when he began that ministry, there were 50, 60 kids involved there. And over the span of eight or nine years, they've uh, reached over 1,000 University of Texas students now that are involved with this Young Life ministry. And so they come to worship and to support one another, but then these college students are also mentoring high school students in the city of Austin. So you can imagine the sort of impact that they're having. I think they're in 30, 40 high schools there locally, and these college kids uh, are spending time building friendships and relationships with these high school students in Austin, Texas. So uh, my, I grew up with Brett. I mean, we, you know, we played basketball together. We've, we've known each other forever. And so he and I talk two or three times a week and uh, so I kind of get the behind the scenes with Brett, but it's funny because people from around the country come to him and they say, what are you doing? How are you, you making this ministry successful? And uh, he, he'll give them some, some disciplines that are involved, but he really credits the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, which has made his community of college students alive. There's a spark there. There's, uh, there's intimate relationships, and this life giving community is now affecting the entire city of Austin. So again, very dynamic, uh, a very uh, alive uh, community. So two examples. Then uh, finally, I've got a brother that's 35 and uh, grew up in Texas. He's still in Dallas. When he was 26, 27, he decided that he was going to go to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Pretty, pretty odd choice. Uh, but we supported him, and, and sure enough, he traveled a bit, landed in Calcutta, worked with the Sisters of Charity for six months, 
and came back with some unbelievable stories. But what's interesting to me is that a group of older women living halfway around the world have done something that's so incredibly dynamic. A 27-year-old kid from the United States immersed in pop culture and materialism would leave his home and travel around the world to experience what was happening there amongst these women. Now that's some power, isn't it? That's, that's, uh, that's real power. So here's my question. When we survey these sorts of life-giving communities and we see lives that are being changed and those that are being drawn to those communities, first of all, I want to talk about where it originated. Secondly, some barriers that may prevent this sort of life-giving community. And then finally, what the New Testament church did to foster this sort of community. Of course, my angle here is how can we as a church foster this kind of life so that people want to come and see what's happening. And I think uh, we'll see hints of that in, in the passage that we read out of Acts. So just some quick history. I've been reading Acts for the last four or five weeks. And I don't know if you know anything about the book of Acts, but it's, it's a very incredible story. And basically it works like this. The guy that wrote the book of Acts says from the beginning, I'm reporting to you what Jesus did. Uh, we saw and we heard. And so I'm relaying to you historically what it ha what's happened. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Christian faith is not a philosophy. It's not necessarily a theology. But it's teaching that's rooted in something that actually happened. Now, people want to undermine the credibility of our faith by calling it a myth. They want to say that these stories were made up to foster a movement. You hear a lot of those criticisms in the press today. But... Uh, that's not what the writer of Luke and the writer of Acts thought. He said this, these, these things happened. I'm writing to tell you about it. You have to know. And he made a really interesting comment on the back end of Luke. He said, there aren't enough books in the world to write down everything that Jesus said and did. Amazing. So that's what's happening in the book of Acts. So how did the life of Jesus in Luke uh, lead to the book of Acts and, and what's happened there. So this is what happened. Jesus was resurrected. For 40 days, he visited four to 500 people and uh, to prove that he had overcome death, that uh, there was resurrection and that that resurrection life could be uh, received by people. And then he said this, I'm about to ascend to the Father, to my rightful place of authority. And, you know, we call him king and we say that he sits at the right hand of God. But ultimately what it means is that Jesus has overcome the world and that he is now the authority over the world that was lost for a time. And he's recovering the world and he's using us to do that. So Jesus goes to the father, but he said this. And this is what's really, I think, interesting and dynamic about the Christian spiritual life. He said, I'm going to go so that the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit will not just be among you, but if you will wait, the Holy Spirit will be in you. That God himself will be in you. Now that's incredible because we're humanly creatures that may live 70 or 80 years and die. And God, in this unique strategy for recovering the world, has decided to work in and through us. That means you and me, as flawed as we might be, and so Jesus said, I have to go to the Father, but wait here, and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm sure they had no idea what to expect. But Jesus did tell them this, when the Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, just a little hint of where this movement is today. It ends, or it's active with these illustrations. that I, we're, the, we're the ends of the earth. Water, water's edge is the ends of the earth. But it started on the day of Pentecost. So, the Holy Spirit comes down. The apostles are filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. And so, as they speak in tongues, they tell of the wonders of Jesus and what he's done. They speak of his teaching, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And as he does this, people are drawn to the message. And it's like an, a, an atom bomb went off. A movement is started that reaches the ends of the earth. Now, this is interesting. Within the first 40 years of the Jesus movement, there were around uh, you know, uh, six to 700 followers. By 350 AD, there were over 36, 37 million followers of Christ, which was over 50% of the Roman Empire. So with 350, in, in the midst of 350 years, this Jesus movement, these people who were following Jesus, began to grow at a very rapid pace because of Pentecost, because the Spirit has come down, it has spoken through the apostles in, in languages that the people could understand. And how strategic was that, that Jesus appointed the visitation of his Holy Spirit to the day of Pentecost when the world would be in Jerusalem. And that message is taken to the world. So that's how it originated. So to this day, the Spirit is still moving. Watershed's church is a part of that. These illustrations that I shared earlier are a part of this day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And the Spirit is in us, and he's with us, and we're doing the work of Jesus in the world. So how then, now that we know where the Spirit originated, how do we foster the work and the power of the Holy Spirit amongst us? How do we grab this or allow for this sort of energy that brings people into our community? You know, uh, I've heard the metaphor used that the spirit is a lot like a warm fire. And when it's really cold outside and people know where that fire is, they begin to come around to get warm. How is it that we in turn can allow for the spirit to work among us and to draw people? In the same way that those I mean, at 26, when I looked at those four architects, and particularly this guy named Rick Archer, and said, there is something different. I've not come across this. In my four years at baseball, of baseball in college and fraternity life and academic life, and even in, in some churches that I'd, I've not seen anything like this, there was something that was winsome. There was a love there that was undefinable, an interest in me that had a, a direct impact on me during that period, and I was drawn. So how can we be that sort of community? Well, before I get to the answers, I want to lay out a few cultural barriers, and I think that overcoming these barriers are the first step to allowing for the Holy Spirit to work actively among us and to do its work. So there's a sociologist uh, by the name of Mark Sayers that wrote a book called The Road Trip That Changed the World. And Mark Sayers, uh, he actually interacts with, with popular culture and then gives a theological perspective on, on, on pop culture. But he says there are two primary impediments to the church uh, in the West and it's being active and alive and, 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 and maybe keeping it from flourishing because they say that the church in the West is declining. That's not, not the case in the East or in, in, in Africa where we see a lot of revival, but in the West and especially amongst younger people, we, we're seeing a decline. So this is what Mark Sayers says. Uh, 
He, I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Kerouac's book, The Road. If you're, if you're over 50, maybe you are. You guys read that book? I read it in my 20s. Jack Kerouac was kind of the first hippie. He was a beatnik in the 40s. And he and a group of friends in New York gathered together, and they began to kind of go off on their own, and they experimented with all sorts of things, sex, drugs, and they had great adventures, and they traveled. And Kerouac writes about uh, all of their activity. Well, Sayers says this, that that began to move the culture toward uh, individualism and away from community and family that what began to happen was we started to value the individual's journey and experience, and we began to leave traditional life behind. So I traveled to Prague in the, in the early 80s uh, when it was still behind the Iron Curtain, and I remember I lived with a family there, and I was surprised because they had three generations under one roof. Well, as an American kid, I didn't see that sort of thing. You know, you, you live with your parents, and then you took off, right? You, you went out, and you, you got your piece of the pie, and you left your community, your clan, your family. But it was interesting to me that this family all lived under one roof. Well, Sayers is saying that there's been a major shift, shift away from traditional community, from family. And now more than anything, we, evaluate, we value the journey, the individual's journey. And born out of that are four sort of uh, characteristics. The first is that people are autonomous, that there's less interdependence, there's less commitment, that everyone's sort of his own man. Secondly, that uh, people are self-defining. And I don't know if you spend a lot of time with millennials, but I do uh, in the city. And they're, much of them are lost. <laughs> they're trying to figure out who they are, and they're defining themselves in various ways. And this is all sort of couched under the idea that you live your dream. Now, I'm not against dreams, but uh, I, I think, again, this is just reflective of this tendency that I go out I define myself, and I figure out who I am in a world that really is absent of much meaning. Thirdly, he said that uh, people in today's society are anti-covenantal. Now, covenant's an old word, uh, but basically a covenant is this. It's the combination of law and love. So in a covenant, you have a contractual commitment, but then you also have relationship and you have love. So marriage is a great example of a covenant relationship. You're bound by law. You're committed to one another by law, but you also foster a loving, interdependent, selfless relationship. So contemporary society doesn't value anymore the commitment side of covenant. Only love, because it satisfies the individual. But when the love is gone, then the individual is gone. So they, they've, they've disregarded covenant. And then finally, Sayer says this, that... Uh, in, in modern-day America, we romanticize the stranger. Now, I just got back from the Austin Film Festival, and uh, I watched a, a documentary on uh, Linkletter, the, the filmmaker and director, and he did a trilogy, uh, three films, called Before Midnight, Sunrise, and Sunset. And I saw some clips from those films. But in these films, he romanticizes the stranger, that you go off to a distant land, you see someone that uh, somehow catches your eye and you project upon that stranger some sort of answer for your own life. So this generation tends to romanticize the stranger. So autonomy, self-definition, anti-covenantal, and then the romanticization of strangers leads to less community and certainly not the opportunity for a spirit-led community where there's independence, commitment, sacrifice, and where the individual serves the whole. So those are barriers that we face in, in contemporary culture. One other quick point 
that Sayers points out that entertainment is increasingly a problem with churches in the West. Uh, he said that there, there are several extremes that we've moved to, and I'm not down on some of these, but just to know the red flags, that uh, church in the consumer age, uh, if we're not careful, the service becomes a pseudo-media event. Uh, the church becomes a shopping mall. Christian leaders become Christian celebrities. Teaching becomes entertainment. Salvation becomes reaching your potential. Character becomes concern for success. Discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement. And then finally, the church becomes a brand. So that's, it's consumerism. It's, it's, uh, it's church shopping in the West. And ultimately, those strategies are meant to serve the individual rather than having the individual serve the whole. And I, I leaned over to Bill during the service, and I, I'm kind of glad we screw up around here sometimes. You know, it's sort of, the package is not so nice and neat, right? You know, kids cry. We have a, you know, it's fine. We're, it's, we're an organic community. We're not a polished product that we're trying to peddle off to people. It's, it's this life-giving, Holy Spirit-based community that will draw people. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's real relationships. So, those are some of the barriers that, that I think we face in contemporary culture. Finally, how then do we get to some sort of breakthrough? Or do we foster breakthrough in our community? And I think the answers are found here in Acts. Now, <clears throat> if I told you that I had a formula for revival, you, you better get suspicious because one of the primary characteristics of the Holy Spirit is that it, it surprises us. It can't be controlled or captured. You can't, you can't make the spirit visit. You can't, through a program or an institution, put together a formula that invites God, God's work among you. There are things that we can do to set the table, but it's God's prerogative. And so I want to list some of those things that I think we can do to sort of set the table to allow for God's uh, power among us through his Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that I didn't read in Acts here is that after Jesus promised the spirit, um, and after the Spirit came, the people asked, what's going on here? And then Peter preached a sermon. Nothing sophisticated. Uh, but he laid out very quickly uh, what just happened. And he said this, that uh, Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he made some references to the Old Testament. So it had some logic and reason behind it. And then he said uh, that uh, you... People here in the audience, you yourselves, you, we, we were the murderers of God. We're guilty. Uh, so there was some conviction, uh, an indictment. And then he challenged these people to repent. So what Peter did was he appealed on a rational basis. There, was, there were emotions involved because it said their response to his sermon is that they were cut to the heart. That his sermon went beyond reason down to the heart of who they were. And then there was an act of the will because they repented. So repentance ushered in this movement, this early movement of the church. There was genuine repentance. So I'd say this, in our church, to the degree that we're genuinely repentant, that we're honest about who we are, and we acknowledge that we need the grace of Jesus to help and to heal us, the Holy Spirit will be among us. And we'll see the visitation of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. And that sort of authenticity will draw people to us. So there was repentance, followed by presence. <clears throat> um, and again, I mentioned earlier that 
presence is both in us and among us. It says in Ephesians that when you receive Jesus, that you are sealed with the Spirit, that God places His Spirit in you. Now, you can stifle the Spirit of times, but it's in you. And what we have to do is foster the Spirit's life in us and in our community. All right, so there was repentance, there was presence, and then finally, there was power. And again, this is what I'm getting at. The power that I saw in these earlier examples that I gave, and then I I want to ask the question, how it is we, we find that power within ourselves. One, one quick illustration. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about God's work in the world because he uses, I think, metaphors that are a little bit more, uh, they're, they're new and refreshing. I think we get, biblical terms get a little bit stale at times. But C.S. Lewis likens this new society or this new community that's so alive and that draws people to a left turn in evolution. Uh, that society thought on the whole that humanity was moving in a particular direction. And at the time of Jesus, it was. It was about empires and conquering and appeasing a multitude of gods and survival. But then Jesus comes to the earth and suddenly humanity takes a detour. And there's a a new evolution. There's a, a society born with new men. And these new men in their community began to re engineer. Uh, and, and to contribute to the kingdom of God. And this is what Lewis says. <clears throat> Already, the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. Some, as I have admitted, are still hardly recognizable, but others can be recognized. And every now and then, one meets them. Their very voices and faces are different from ours. They're stronger, they're quieter, they're happier, and they're more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They'll not be very like the idea of religious people, which you form from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you're being kind to them when they're really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but but they need you less. They will usually seem to have a lot of time. You'll wonder where it comes from. And when you've recognized one of them, you'll recognize that the next, one, uh, the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even of creeds. And in that way, to become holy is rather like joining a new and secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun. So the way that God is changing the world through the church and through his new community is through a new society of men and women who have been born again and made new and are a lot like the people that I described earlier in the sermon. All right, so we have repentance, presence, and power in a new community formed. And this is, I'll close with these four uh, quick points. But I want you to see the disciplines, the things that the community was devoted to after God did his work. Now, devotion's an interesting word. It's not duty. It's not discipline alone, but it involves discipline. So I'm, I'm devoted to my wife, okay? Well, part of that's discipline and part of that's duty, but that's love too, right? I'm devoted to her. So they were devoted to these things. They were disciplined to do these things out of love, but yet there was, uh, there was discipline and there was duty involved. So beyond the movement, there was structure. And I like to say this, that if you try to build the structure, uh, what was it? What was the baseball movie when Build It and They Will Come? 
Yeah, it's actually not true. Uh, we usually, we, we build it after it comes. And you don't want to get those things in reverse. So when the Spirit moves, if you'll notice, the Old Testament church began to organize and, uh, behind the Spirit's movement. So God did a work because there was repentance. God begins to change people, and the community ordered themselves after the movement. So this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. And uh, Bill and I talked about that, and Bill shared with me this week that one of the first priorities of the church is that we expose God's word week in and week out at the service, that there's teaching from the scripture. And why is that? We're just doing what they did in the first century. We're telling about who, who Jesus was, what he did, uh, what redemption's all about, how you too can be included in God's family. We're just reporting history. We're heralds for the good news. We're telling people what has happened. So we're about teaching. Uh, they committed themselves to fellowship. Now, this is interesting. It said that they met daily. Now, I don't know how that might play out for you. You might be in a small group with the church. You might be in a, a weekly coffee with other believers. But in order for us to allow for God's presence and movements among this community, we need to be together on a regular basis. And that could be playing a round of golf. That could be over a coffee. That could be with our, the work that we do over in Compton or the work that we do with Solace. Uh, it could be supporting the ministries that people have established in the church. But these people were together on a regular basis. They were with each other daily. Um, my buddy Brett, who's involved with this work at the University of Texas, he, did, he does tell people one thing. He says, you know what, when they asked me what I do, he said, I, uh, what he, he says, I block, I block and run, I think is what he says, an old football analogy, which basically is this, that we do the basics. He goes, we're with people every day. I go up to the campus every day and I meet with students. So we're just doing the blocking day in and day out. And God has blessed our efforts. And we need to be about those things, being together, being in community and serving together. So they were together in service. One thing I left off of the list that's on your outline is, is, is prayer and praise. And obviously, we take time to praise here in the service. And then I know that Lindsay is really involved with the prayer ministry for the church. But God can't do anything, or he may be stifled if we're not in prayer for the church and in prayer for one another. And these people prayed daily and regularly. We need to be praying for the ministries, for each other, for Bill, for those that serve us. So there was regular prayer. And then finally, as a consequence of all this, the teaching, the fellowship, the service, the prayer, and the praise, God began to add to their number. So... How can you, how can I, as a new person, a born-again believer, and a part of this community that we want to be alive and active, we want it to be organic, we want it to be genuine and real, how can we implement these disciplines and at the same time request that God's Spirit be present and, and move among us? What can you do exactly? And I know that we've got some folks that are going to come up and talk about some of the ministries that we're involved in. My encouragement to each one of us is that we begin to engage at this level more and more. And I believe that like Mother Teresa's community of sisters, that people here in the South Bay will want to come because they'll see something different. And I spoke in the class earlier this morning, and I mentioned some of the things that the church was doing. Um, did you know that we scholarship kids who can't afford to go to Young Life Camp in the summer to go to camp? We pay for them to go. 
I was at Ocean Fellowship Church last Sunday night. My daughter had to play practice there. And now they have a Sunday evening service for these kids from the east side of L.A., 50 to 75 every Sunday night that come to service. And our church has been a part of that by scholarshiping kids to go to Young Life Camp. They couldn't put together $5 to go to Young Life Camp, and yet we do that. If you've gone to work over at Compton, you see, I mean, that's miraculous. If you want to, rather than invite somebody to go to church, invite them to go to Compton with you. I mean, that's a very life-giving dynamic over there. Uh, you think about Solace for the Children and the Afghani kids that we've had live in our community and the medical service that's been provided. These are the sorts of things that as people begin to hear about them and, uh, and, and experience them that will add to this uh, dynamic where the presence of God is with us and the Holy Spirit is breathing life uh, into a body of people. So uh, consider that, and I think we have some more people to come and share some things. So let me pray for us real quick. Lord, thanks for uh, establishing a community rooted in your son Jesus, and thank you for sending him to start that community with a Un, uh, undeniable and un, incomprehensible uh, sacrifice. And yet that sacrifice and love has uh, brought people together over the centuries and reaches us here in uh, Southern California in the year 2014. What a miraculous movement of, of love and healing and grace, and we're grateful to be involved with it. I pray for Water's Edge Church, Lord, for our community. Help us to implement these things, and I pray as we do that your Holy Spirit would be among us. In Jesus' name, amen.